Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. And the title of this sermon is False Advertising. Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. Well, I know it's a, a little bit early in the year for this, but how many of you guys love the movie Elf? Yeah, most of us. Uh, such a great Christmas movie. Uh, so many hilarious scenes as you watch it. But one scene that I love is when Will Ferrell walks into the coffee shop and screams, You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. Because, of course, this coffee shop had a sign in the window that said it. World's best cup of coffee. But in reality... And this is why it's funny. Uh, It's a greasy spoon diner that probably serves sludge, or what I refer to not as coffee, but as warm brown drink. Uh, Imagine with me for a second, if you saw that sign, world's best cup of coffee, and you took it seriously. You love good coffee. You regularly drink Verve, Cat and Cloud, or Ritual coffee. So you go into that shop with high expectations, and they pour you Folgers. No offense if you like Folgers, but this would be false advertising. One thing was advertised, and another was produced. That's what today's text is all about. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. 
Our three points for today's sermon are point one, barren trees in verses 12 through 14. Point two, barren worship in verses 15 through 19. And then point three, roots and fruits in verses 20 through 25. So point one, barren trees. Uh, I want us to notice in the first place in verse 12 that as they're coming from Bethany, Jesus and his disciples, it says that he, meaning Jesus, was hungry. Now, I'm not going to camp here for long, but do you see that Mark highlights here Jesus's humanity? Uh, Over and over and over again, Mark has shown us Jesus's divinity. He's God. And he's God incarnate. He's fully God and fully man. He's hungry. He experienced every single human experience except for sin. Think about that. It doesn't matter what you're going through in life. Jesus can empathize with you. He was fully human. In terms of temptation, look what Hebrews 4 verse 15 says. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was fully human. But his hunger also sets up for us what's about to happen. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, at first glance, this seems kind of odd, doesn't it? It seems like Jesus is on the road and he's just had it for some reason. And he uses his power in a vindictive, maybe inappropriate way. In fact, a number of liberal theologians and skeptics actually cite this text as a reason for their doubt. I think that's kind of silly, but it's true. They either say, this just doesn't seem like something Jesus would actually do, Or, if Jesus acts like that and throws fits like that, I just don't want to follow him. But what's really going on here? Why does Jesus curse this tree? Well, I believe that this tree is actually one of the most productive, useful trees in history. Because it's still teaching us lessons today. Jesus was on this road. He saw this tree and saw a perfect opportunity for a parable. The disciples and we this morning need to understand this spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching through a tree. Look again closely at verse 13. It says, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. It's important for us to know that the prophets in the Old Testament... Now, often referred to Israel as a fig tree. Uh, We'll look at one of those texts in just a moment. But it'd be like someone today using a bald eagle as kind of an object lesson. 
We'd know immediately what they were talking about. They're trying to teach us something about the United States with a bald eagle as the representative. So Jesus walks up to this fig tree. And what does he see? It says a fig tree in leaf. It has leaves on it, signifying that it's producing, even though it's not the season yet. It's got that sign up that says world's best cup of coffee. So Jesus strolls up and the text tells us when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Do you see it? The tree, Israel, was advertising something that it wasn't producing. People were were coming to the tree expecting juicy, sweet, nourishing fruit. But there was nothing there. It was barren. This tree may have not had any fruit. I want to suggest that it was ripe for an eternal object lesson. Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, had to have been on Jesus' mind as he walked up to this tree. Jeremiah 8, verses 8 through 13. It says, How can you say we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Verse 13, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Jesus, like the prophets before him, often used props to teach truth. Jeremiah says they're advertising wisdom. They're advertising peace. There's no figs on the fig tree. Jesus wants the disciples to see this, to internalize it, to never forget it. He's functioning as a prophet here to teach them the truth. So what does he do? Verse 14, he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard it. Jesus curses the fig tree. He judges it because it has advertised fruit but produced none. Advertised fruit produced none. This is hypocrisy. So I'll ask the question, what about us? Is there anywhere in your life that you have the appearance of fruitfulness but lack true fruit? Is there anywhere you're advertising the world's best cup of coffee with your mouth, but pouring sludge with your life? If there is, take time right now to repent, 
Fig leaves are no good. We learned that in the garden in Genesis 3, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. They've sinned, and what do they do? Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve sinned, and they tried to hide behind fig leaves to make themselves look more presentable. God saw right through it. But here's the good news. He provided better clothing, didn't he? Genesis 3.21, after seeing this, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you see that? While fig leaves were inadequate, God shed blood so that they would be genuinely covered. That's the gospel. If you have areas of your life this morning where you're in sin, yet advertising fruit, you can't cover yourself up. But God can. You can be covered by the blood of the Lamb. You can be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. He died on the cross to pay for your sin. His righteousness was imputed or credited to those who repent and believe in Him. And the result of this is not only that we're saved, yes, that's true, but that we also produce fruit. So understand this. Fruit on your tree is not what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. But saved trees produce fruit. That's what James chapter 2 is all about. I encourage you to go read it. Further, saved trees have the Spirit dwelling in them. What does Galatians chapter 5 say? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What fruit are you advertising? And what fruit is actually on your limbs? I'm begging you, please don't walk away from here this morning and just move on with your day without reflecting on these questions. Now ask the Spirit through God's Word to convict you where needed. Repent. Ask Him to produce fruit in you for His glory, for your good, and for your evangelistic impact on the world. So Jesus, as prophet, pronounces judgment on barren trees. But look at what happens next. Point two, barren worship. Verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Remember last week? This temple, the one that the whole procession of the triumphal entry led up to, 
This temple was the temple that was supposed to point to him, Jesus. And this is what he walks up on. Again, Jesus' actions here can seem harsh. He can seem kind of like a loose cannon until you understand what's actually happening. First, to kind of get a grasp of the context, Jesus is at this place called Herod's Temple, which had four distinct parts to it. There was the court of the Gentiles, which was kind of the, the outer part of the temple, and it measured about 35 acres. It was huge. It's about 500 by 325 yards. So three football fields by five football fields. That's the court of the Gentiles, the outer part. Inside this court was the court of women. Then the court of Israel, which only circumcised Jews could enter. Finally, there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go and only once a year. There's a kind of rendering of what it might have looked like. So all of this in our text today is taking place out in that main courtyard area, the court of the Gentiles. And it's Passover. According to Josephus, a Jewish historian, the city of Jerusalem could swell to two million people during Passover. With over a quarter of a million lambs being slaughtered for sacrifice. Just pause for a second and take that in. Over 250,000 lambs sacrificed during Passover in Jerusalem. Plus, as we'll see in the text, there were other animals being sacrificed too, like pigeons. And all of this was according to the law of Moses. But think about that. People are traveling from long distances to get to this temple. And instead of bringing their own lambs or their own pigeons, they could purchase these animals in the temple. Pigeons, by the way, were sacrificial animals for the poor. So, these great-hearted people in the temple were selling these animals to the religious pilgrims at cost, just to help them obey God, right? Wrong. Actually, they were charging ridiculous amounts for these animals. Some say up to 16 times the normal price. It's like going to the baseball game and buying a hot dog, right? You get the same hot dog at home for 50 cents, but there in the ballpark, it's going to cost you 12 bucks. But you're already there. What are you going to do? They were ripping God's people off, profiting from their desire to obey the law. Further, in Exodus chapter 30, Verses 13 through 16, we read this. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel 
and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. So, each male over 20 had to pay this offering. But again, most of these people had foreign currency with idolatrous images on them, which couldn't be used in the temple. Our great-hearted people, again, out of the goodness of their hearts, would exchange money for them. But at ridiculously high exchange rates. Pretty awful, huh? Finally, Kent Hughes tells us that to top it off, the court of the Gentiles was used as a regular Jerusalem thoroughfare because it afforded a convenient crosstown route to the Mount of Olives. Even though the Mishnah contained an ordinance aimed at curbing traffic by forbidding anyone to enter the Temple Mount carrying his staff or sandal or wallet or to use it as a shortcut, people still did so. The court of the Gentiles was a huge religious circus, he says. So the temple that was supposed to point to Jesus had all of that going on. And what does Jesus do? The text tells us he began to drive them out. Same word used for whenever he would drive out demons. He flipped over the money changing tables. Physically blocked people from using the temple as a cut through. Amazing, right? He's like a bouncer at this point. The humble lamb is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's gentle and lowly, but he's also filled with zeal. Kent Hughes again says it this way. I love this. He says, Meekness is not weakness. It is rather strength under control. Meekness has the strength to not defend oneself. Jesus, when he went to the cross, for example. But meekness will boldly defend others. And here, Jesus struck out in defense of the holiness of God the Father. So why did Jesus do this? In our first section, remember... Jesus was functioning as a prophet, giving us an object lesson, casting judgment on the tree. He's prophet. Now, here in the temple, he's functioning as a priest. The text just before this that we read last week, he rode into Jerusalem as what? A king. Who is Jesus? That's the question that Mark asks and answers over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? He's prophet, he's priest, and he's king. But here, in the temple, he's a priest. Look at verse 17. It says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, There's a specific purpose for this place. It's meant to be what? A house of prayer. For who? All the nations. House of prayer for all the nations. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 says, These I will bring to my holy mountain 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The temple, God's house, was to be a place of reverence. A place where God and man meet. A place of prayer. Further, it was to be for all peoples or nations. R.C. Sproul says it well. He says, The Jews hoped that the Messiah would cleanse the temple of Gentiles. But Jesus cleansed the temple for Gentiles. Read that again. The Jews hoped that the Messiah would cleanse the temple of Gentiles. But Jesus cleansed the temple for Gentiles. God had a specific purpose for the temple. And instead, they had made it a den of thieves. Jesus is quoting here, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, which says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Do you see how saturated in scripture Jesus is? Everything he's saying comes from the Old Testament. He knows God's intent. And he knows when God's holiness is being violated. That's the issue at stake here. God's holiness. God's character. God's law. We've addressed this before in the past, but I briefly want to bring it back up again. What Jesus is doing here in cleansing or cursing the temple, it's known as righteous anger. But not all anger is righteous, is it? Tim Challies, he's a blogger, he's written an excellent article on the difference between these two, between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And this blog article he wrote is called Three Marks of Righteous Anger. And his three marks are these. Mark one is actual sin. So you're angry at actual sin. He says this. He says the first mark of righteous anger is that it reacts against actual sin. It arises from an accurate perception of what is actually evil. This means that for anger to be righteous, it cannot arise in response to a violation of my preferences. It cannot arise because I have been inconvenienced or I feel that my rights and freedoms have been trampled upon. Righteous anger reacts against what is really sin. Mark 2, God's concerns. When we turn to the Bible to find accounts of righteous anger, he says, we see that this kind of anger focuses on God and on his kingdom, his rights, his concerns. Not on me and my kingdom, my rights and my concerns. It is the violation of God's name or God's fame that motivates anger. Not my name and my fame. And then third, godly expression. So understand this. Jesus isn't out of control here. But he is filled with zeal for God's holiness. He wants them and us this morning to understand the seriousness of what's going on. God desires our reverence in worship. 
It's not to say that we lose our smiles or that we lose our laughter when we walk through those doors. It's not to say that we become stick-in-the-mud people. Not at all. But we are meant to take God seriously. We're meant to honor and revere His name. We're meant to respect His holiness. This is meant to be a house of prayer, he says, for all nations. So, do you see the connection here between what's going on in the temple and the fig tree? The temple was meant to be a place that brought people into God's presence. Instead, it was distorting God's character. It was a place that advertised righteousness, but had nothing but leaves. It was a fig tree with no figs. So what about us? What is the church? What is the church? We could do multiple sermons on that question, and we have in the past. What is the church? In the words of one author, the church is the gospel made visible. The gospel made visible. We're set apart. We're commissioned as God's people to display God's character to the world. As the church. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. And then pay attention to verse 10. It says that all of that happened so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Do you see that? Simply put, we as a church exist to advertise God's fruit to a lost and starving world. Are we succeeding? Or are we nothing but leaves? We're meant to advertise the world's best cup of coffee and then actually provide it in the gospel. We do that through reverently worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We do that through living holy lives. We do that through singing and praying and preaching and sharing the good news of Jesus as our only hope of salvation. And here's the truth. (laughs) The only way that the church can be a house of prayer for all nations is because of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may, may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Similarly, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
(laughs) Our prayers and the prayers of all nations are heard by the Father because of the Son, according to that text. His propitiation or his sin offering for us, his advocacy for us, his intercession for us. This is the only way that a follower of Jesus has any fruit at all. Not because we're good in and of ourselves. We're not. But because Christ has died for us and clothed us in his righteousness. He's given us his spirit, which produces fruit in and through us. So we've seen Jesus deal with barren trees Now, with barren worship. Finally, point three. Roots and fruits. Roots and fruits. Look with me at verses 20 through 25. Jesus has left the temple at this point and is heading back out of the city. Verse 20 says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So see this. Most people call what Jesus did in the temple just before this, the cleansing of the temple. But he didn't cleanse it. He cursed it. Just like he did the fig tree that we see withered here. Again, this is a clear object lesson. The temple that was meant to point to him didn't. He cursed it. And it would soon be obsolete and destroyed. Because the better temple, Jesus, was about to die as a once and for all sacrifice. We've already talked about the fruit that should be seen on the tree of a Christian. But think about this. Fruits are produced by roots. Fruits are produced by roots. These are the roots that should have been in God's temple but weren't. Faith. Belief. Prayer. And forgiveness. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. First, Jesus says, have faith in God. He's speaking to the disciples, speaking to us. Have faith in God. No fruit will come from a tree without the root of faith. Belief. Trusting God. Dependence on God. This is the root of the gospel. This is what saves us. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that root 
produces every other fruit. And notice that it isn't just faith in faith. It's faith in God. He's the object and the end of our faith. It's mountain-moving faith. This is hyperbole, but what Jesus is calling for is faith in the impossible. Faith in the impossible. That's where true faith begins. Think about it. It's impossible for the dead to become alive. It's impossible for a sinner to be made clean without faith. Second, Jesus calls us to pray in faith. And I want to be very clear here. This, this isn't Jesus advocating the, the word of faith movement or, or the, the name it and claim it movement. I don't have to t- time to go into detail here, but we have to bring the rest of Scripture to bear. Jesus is calling us to pray in accordance with the will of God. To pray in accordance with the will of God. One of many ways to do this is to pray through Scripture like we did this morning. To use Scripture as the bedrock and the foundation of our prayers. How can you know you're praying in accordance with the will of God? Pray the Scriptures. Pick out a psalm. Pick out something from Colossians, Ephesians. There's bookmarks out there on the table that have a psalm of the day, every day that you can pray through. Open it up. Begin there. Pray the will of God out of the text. So he's calling us to have faith in God. He's calling us to pray in accordance with the will of God. Third and finally, Jesus calls us to forgive like God. To forgive like God. We forgive, we can forgive, because we've been forgiven. When we choose not to forgive, we're no better than barren trees or barren worshipers. Christ has forgiven us more than we can possibly know. And so we, as the church, the gospel made visible, are meant to reflect his character and his love for us and his love for others. That's what it means to be fruitful, to rest in the gospel, to abide in the gospel, to pray in the gospel, and to forgive in the gospel. Jesus said in John 15, verses 4 through 5 that we read earlier, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, that's us. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, that's him. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So my call, my my challenge to you this morning, church, is this. Abide in the vine. Bear fruit. Let's pray.